All right, good morning, church. Is this thing on? It sounds kind of loud. Can you all hear me? All right. Uh, good morning. If you've got a Bible, I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Uh, go ahead and be open in there. Uh, for those of y'all who don't know me, I've been here uh, a couple times before. Uh, Buck Benton is one of my great friends. I love Buck to death, so I'm glad to, uh, to be able to, to, to preach to, to, uh, to his church, to God's church, uh, that Buck is shepherding this morning. My name is Dallas Wilson. I'm the Students and Discipleship Pastor uh, in Millen, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be uh, bringing the Word today, and I'm so excited. Me and my wife are so excited to be here and be a part of, of this worship service with you guys. While you're turning uh, to Luke chapter 14, before we pray for this service, I just want to take a second and just encourage y'all in Dublin, right? I know a lot of times what happens if, as you are a part of a church is that you, you begin coming to the church and serving in the church and coming to church on Sunday and going to group throughout the week and all those things. And what happens is you get so close to something, you can't actually see what God's doing in something. But I want to encourage y'all, man, God is on the move in Dublin. And God has been faithful to Dublin. And, uh, so I, I, a couple weeks ago, Brittany came in, uh, Brittany Smiley, and she works with y'all students, you know, and she comes in and she says, uh, man, God, we just had an awesome night at students last night. Like six kids got saved. I was just like, what? Six kids? And she's like, yeah. And I, I just want to tell y'all, that's, that's God, right? Because I do students in Millen, and I just want to tell you, like most of the time, it's just all I can do to keep them from Snapchatting me while I'm teaching on Wednesday nights, all right? Like, so if six kids got saved, man, that's, that's God's doing something, right? And y'all, y'all be sure to be, uh, be attentive to what God's doing because he is working. Uh, if you've got your Bible to Luke 14, I want to pray for us real quick before we dive into the text. God, Lord, I am nothing, God. Lord, I'm, I'm nothing. And I just pray this morning that uh, from here on out, dear God, my words would be null and void, dear God, that these, these people here this morning would not even hear me, dear God. They don't need to hear from a man this morning, God. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd have mercy on me, a sinner, dear God. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that, that you would be in this place, dear God, that any confusion, dear God, any, um, dear God, lack of clarity would just be gone from this place, dear God, as we look at your word, dear God. And I pray that you would just come in here and be among us and that your name would be glorified, dear God. And I pray that when we leave here, dear God, Lord, I pray that when we leave here, dear God, we would leave this place and, and go into this world for your glory. I love you and I praise you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. So, uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, this is our second week in a series called The End of Me. And now, I am, I, I am absolutely in love with this series because in this series, we are looking at the call of Jesus on the lives of Christians for them to deny themselves. You know, this is what Christ says to people when they come to him. Deny themselves and die to themselves and live for him. So today, what we're going to be doing in particular, we're going to be going to Luke chapter 14. And the goal of today is we're going to see how Christ is calling us to live a life of radical commitment to him. All right, that's what we're going to be looking at today, how Christ is calling us to live our life of radical commitment to follow him. And now, before we read this text, I want to just, I want to clarify what I mean by follow him, okay? Because a lot of times what happens is, is we come to church services like this, and we hear things like we should follow Jesus, but we don't know what that means, right? And so even as I was preparing this, I had to get a definition in my mind of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, what does that even, what does that, what 
is a definition for that? What does it work? What does it look like? And for me, this is how I define following Jesus. If you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. But this is how I would define following Jesus. It, I define following Jesus like this. Living for the glory of Christ and the spread of his gospel. Okay? That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means that your whole life is meant to live for God, okay? You're living for glo the glory of Jesus Christ, his name to be made famous. And you're living so that everybody else can know him, right? It's just like what Brittany was up here saying just a second ago. Like, man, she wants to see people come to know Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Like, you're living for the glory of his name. And now, as we read this text, I want y'all to be encouraged by something. Because what y'all are about to see right off the bat from this text in Luke 14, and starting in verse 25, what y'all are about to see is that there is no fine print in the, in the call of Christ, okay? There's no small terms and conditions, right, when it comes to following Christ. You know, the reality is we hate fine print. Has anybody in here ever bought a car, like been to a dealership and legit bought a car? Raise your hand. Been to a dealership? I don't know if I bought a car or if I signed my life away, right? There's so much fine print. And then like you get done, it's like, oh, yeah, what you just did was you bought a $17,000 warranty, so now you finance twice as much, right? There's fine print everywhere. We hate fine print. How about this? Has anybody this week uh, clicked, I accept the terms and agreement on anything, right? How many of you actually read the terms and agreement for you? you we didn't. Why? Because we hate fine print. We hate it. And here's what I want you to see before we go into this text this morning, is that when it comes to Christ, there is no fine print when he calls you. Christ is upfront and honest about what he expects from those who follow him. So here's where, I want you, here's where we're going to be going today. There's going to be four things in this text I want you to see. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you what they are, so as we read through them, you can know what I'm talking about. All right, four things that we're going to see today. Number one, Christ calls us to die to our worldly priorities. Number one, Christ calls us to die to our worldly priorities. Number two, Christ calls us to die to our comfort. Number three, Christ calls us to die for ourselves, die to ourselves. And then number four, Christ calls us to count the cost. So that's, that's what we're about to see in this text. So if you got your Bible, Luke 14, starting in verse 25, this is what the Bible says. It's really important that you read along. I think it's going to be on the screen. 14, starting in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters yet, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All right, you just hear the air go out of the room when Christ says this. All right? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, stop right there. And like, let's think about, because I, I want to make sure you all are with me this morning. Think about how radical this statement Christ just made is. Imagine in the next presidential election, there are people running for the president. And in the debate, one of them says, if anybody wants to vote for me, what they should do is they should pick up their electric chair and come to the polls and follow me, right? We would be like, this dude is whack. Right? That's what Christ is calling us to do. Pick up an instrument of torture and follow him. Verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Right? Anybody ever build a house? You ever build a house from the ground up? Anybody? All right. 
before you did it, right? What'd you, you went and made sure you had the money to do it, right? That's what Christ is saying. Verse 30, saying, This man began to, be, began to build and was not able to finish it. Verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, de, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What's Christ saying there? And you guys ever been in a fight and you looked at you were about to get, like you were about to throw hands, you knew it was coming to it, and you looked up at the guy and you know, like, I just ain't got this one, right? This guy's gonna take me, right? And what do you do? You start backing out of it. Like, it's like when you hear somebody talking trash across the room and you say, hey man, shut up, and you turn around and then you just realize you open your mouth too quick, right? That's what Christ is saying here. You're sizing up the, what's going on. Like, okay, I'm not, I can't handle this. All right, verse 32, or verse 33. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do we need to read it again to see what Christ just told us? I mean, even right now, we should just be like, man, this is crazy, right? Here's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see that Christ is calling us to die to our worldly priorities. Can we put verse 26 back on the screen? Christ is calling us to die to our worldly priorities. What's he say first? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, for those of us who've been in church a long time, there's a rush when we get to these kind of verses, right? We read these kind of verses, and what we do is we start immediately trying to twist it to make it more comfortable, to make it a little bit easier to accept, right? We immediately say, well, Christ, Christ didn't really mean that we got to hate our mother and sister and brother and children and all those things. That's not what Christ really meant. What Christ really meant was X, okay? Let's just take just a second. Before we start saying what Jesus really meant, let's let his words do their work on us, okay? When Christ says something, I'm pretty sure he means it. We just got to understand what he's meaning. Now, we know from Christ's other words that this can't be like a literal call to be ugly and hateful to, toward our family, right? We know, guys, some of you guys, you might be struggling in your marriage. You're like, man, this is just what I need. I can go into my, wife, go into my house this afternoon and be like, God, I hate you, right? That's not, what, that's not what that is, right? I hope none of you are there, by the way, all right? But that's not what he's saying here. Why? Because we know in other places, Christ calls us to love, love our neighbor as ourselves. So he's not telling us to be hateful towards people. We know in other places that Christ calls us to do things like respect and honor our mother and father, right? So this isn't a call to be mean and ugly and hateful. So what is it actually saying? One thing to notice here is that Christ is saying this, these words to large crowds that are following him. So at this point in his ministry, what, what's happening is, is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die on a cross, and he has performed so many miracles, and he has taught with so much authority that the crowds are amazed, and they are saying, we have got to follow this person. Now, what do they want when they're following him? They want a magic show. They want some free food. They want to be along for the ride because maybe this guy's going to Jerusalem to get power. They're tagging along riding his coattails, right? And Christ is look, turns around and he looks to this crowd as he's on his way to Jerusalem and he is letting them know that he has no patience for people who follow after him but are not radically committed to him. Now, 
Let me say that to the people this morning who have come into church at 11 o'clock on Sunday in South Georgia. All right? Christ is letting us know that he has zero tolerance for people who follow after him but are not radically committed to him. Christ's words are meant to reveal to his followers. As he turns around and says this to the crowd, and imagine him turning around and saying to us, they're meant to reveal to us that there is no halfway obedience to Jesus. This morning, you are either all in or you are either all out. Failure to be one or the other is a decision. And the first way that Christ is aiming to kill this half-hearted obedience, listen, the first way that Christ is coming to you this morning and saying, there will be no halfway obedience, the first way that he's aiming to kill that halfway obedience is by coming at our worldly priorities and urging us to die to our worldly priorities and live for him. And I don't know if y'all know this, but there is no more basic worldly priority than your family, right? I mean, that's as basic as it gets. There is no more basic priority in life than a mother and a child, than a husband and a wife, than a, a, a son and a father. Wouldn't y'all agree with that? I mean, you look at, you look at how you spend your time this, this past week, and I can promise you, your priorities are revealed that, hey, man, your, your family, is probably, your family, your friends, they're probably right up there toward the top. And so what Christ is doing is he's saying, if you want to follow me, I have to be more important than even your family. He says, as a matter of fact, listen, he says, as a matter of fact, you should love me so much more than your family that the way you love me in comparison to the way you love your family, it should look like you hate your family. In, in this call, Christ is calling us to love him in such a way that the decisions we make, listen, Christ is calling us to love him in such a way that the decisions we make in this life of devotion to him, when it compared that to how we love our family, it looks like we hate them. Now, I want to give you a real, I want to get you a real practical example of how this actually works in real life, okay? For in real life, how can a man love Jesus so much that it looks like he hates his wife and children? I would argue to you that the man who packs up his family and moves them across the country or across the world to go and share the gospel, when people look at him, they look at him and say, man, you must hate your family. Who would take their family to a third world country to spread the gospel? Man, you must hate your family. No, the man doesn't hate his family. Guess what? He just loves Jesus a whole lot, right? It might look like, it might be like the son or the daughter who leaves their father or their mother and moves across the country or across the world because that's what God's told them to do. And when, when, the, when the mother or the father looks at the son or the daughter, they say, you must hate me to leave me like this. It's not that we hate them. It's that we love Jesus that much. You know, I think we got an illustration of this from the Bible. I think the, uh, the Apostle Peter serves in the, as a real good illustration of this. You know that Apostle Peter had a wife? Go read Matthew. It's in there, right? He, the Apostle Peter had a wife. As a matter of fact, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if Peter was upset about that. You know, some people would be like, Jesus, why'd you hear my mother-in-law, right? That was a joke. I love my mother-in-law. She's not here. But, but Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Now, to have a mother-in-law, you've got to have a wife, okay? I don't know if y'all know how that works. In Millen, we understand that. But Peter 
left his wife. Kids, I don't know. Left his wife for three years and followed a rabbi around the Judean countryside for three years. Now, I can only imagine that in Peter's comings and going, Peter's pro- people probably came up to Peter and be like, Peter, don't you have a wife? And he's like, yeah, man, left her in uh, Nazareth. She's just back there, you know, tending the nets, helping my father out, I'm sure. Be like, Peter, you left your wife? You must hate your wife. Like, man, and I'm pretty sure Peter wasn't like, yeah, I hate her. Golly, I'm glad. That's why I'm following Jesus, right, to get away from her. No, Peter probably loved his wife. But in comparison to how much he loved Christ, Man, his wife just paled in comparison. So the question you've got to ask yourself this morning, the question Christ is asking you is, do you love your family, your worldly relationships, the priorities in this world more than you love me? And if you do, you cannot be my disciple. The point is, Christ is calling us to love him more than even our families and to live for him and his mission, even over our family's comfort and agenda. You know, the sad part about this is, in in today's Christian society, what a lot of us do most of the time is we take Christ and we try to make him a servant to our family. What we do is we look at Jesus and we say, well, Jesus is what I need to have the perfect marriage and good good kids who don't misbehave and the perfect little all-American dream family. If I can just have Jesus, he'll give me all those things. And what Christ is saying is, I am not a servant to your family. Your family will be a servant to me. I, I come across this quote, and I'm just going to read it. I, I hope some of you in here are parents. I hope you have children. And I hope this quote cuts you like it cut me. Kent Hughes says this about this, about this passage. It says, this is where so many of us fall short. In the secularized, anti-family culture of today, our family is at the center of our Christian ethic, and that is proper. But some of us love our wives, husbands, and children more than we love God. We miss the mark when we put their development athletically, intellectually, culturally, artistically, or socially before their spiritual well-being. Listen, this is what cut me. We fall short when we spend more time in the car in one day shuttling them to games and lessons than we do in a month in prayer for their souls. By comparison, our lives reveal that we hate God and love our children disproportionately and that we are not Jesus' disciples. I don't know about y'all. When I read that, man, my heart was just ripped out of my chest. So with a harsh, enigmatic epigram, Jesus yanks us from our dream world. He says, do you fancy yourself a disciple? Do you think you are going to follow me? Then you must love me so much that your love for your family seems like hatred in comparison. Hate your own life. Otherwise, don't pretend to be following me. You see, the question we have to ask is are we pretending to follow Jesus? Are we coming in here week after week at 11 o'clock, lifting our hands in praise, saying, Christ, you are more important, when all the while we leave this place and we put our families and our children and our worldly priorities and relationships before Christ? Because Christ says, if that is what you're doing, you are not my follower. Next thing, no, uh, second thing I want you to see 
Christ calls us to die to our comfort. Look at verse 27 with me. Verse 27 says this. Verse 27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Christ is calling us to pick up a cross. This is a call to die to what makes us comfortable. Now, I don't know what you know about uh, first century Roman torture tactics, but there was just no comfortable way to carry a cross. The very idea of putting a cross on somebody's shoulders is meant to torture them and eventually to lead them to a point where they're going to die. So what Christ is saying to us is, I want you to pick up an instrument of discomfort. Embrace a life of discomfort. We're called to die to our own comfort. Listen, because when we embrace Christ, we will embrace a lifestyle of continually killing sin that is in us and sacrificing our lives so that others can know Jesus Christ. And if we want to do that, I want to tell you, church, that is not going to be easy. When we pick up our cross and follow Jesus... We are carrying a cross following a man who died on a cross because we want the whole world to know the man who rose from the dead after the cross. And I say this, and listen, this isn't in my notes. This is completely free. And I just want, I just want to get this point across because God's speaking this to my heart. Until you love the man on the cross, until you love the king who conquered the cross, You'll never pick up a cross. I like what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, the Christian life is way different. It's a life of discomfort. Give me all. I don't want so, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No halfway measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. Christ is saying here, when he's calling for you to to carry a cross, he's saying, I will have all of you or I will have none of you, but I will not have part of you. Now, I want y'all to notice that it's almost eerie silent in here. And here's why, here's why I think that's important. Because this does not preach well to 21st century American Christians. Why? Because God is, our God is not God. Our God is comfort. What we want is comfort. What we want is the white picket fence. We want to make enough money to pay all our bills and not be too much in debt. We want the perfect family. We want our kids to grow up and be a little bit better off than we do. But what we don't want is to be the slightly little, the most little bit inconvenienced for the glory of God. And if God, if you're telling me that I've got to sacrifice, that I've got to be inconvenienced, that I've got to be made uncomfortable so that your glory can go forward, well, God, I'm not in it. This is why we just don't take bad news well. This is why our divorce rates in Christians is the same as it is outside of Christians. 
Because when things get uncomfortable, we just say, God, you must not be in this because you would want me to be comfortable. Christ calls you to pick up a cross. His comfort is not, is not as, your comfort is not his concern. So what comforts this morning is Christ calling you to die to? What is he calling you to give up? What financial overload is he calling you to lay down? What relationship is he calling you to be willing to suffer in? What sickness have you been diagnosed with even this week that you think is from the devil, but God says it's a way that I'm teaching you to carry your cross? And can I just be honest with you this morning? I don't know what anybody listens to or reads anywhere outside of this building, but this is why crap, and I'm, I, I choose that word very specifically, crap like your best life now and every day of Friday is so dangerous. Because listen, if you're living your best life now, you're going to hell. Your best life is not now. Your best life is in glory. Now, I'm going to get to where you, the joy comes in in just a minute. But we cannot be deceived into thinking that Christ is a servant to my comfort. Are you willing to die to your comfort so that God's glory can go forward? Amen. Number three, Christ calls us to die to ourselves. Look at verse 33 with me. Can we put verse 33 on the screen? Verse 33 says this, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christ summarizes the call for all that we have by calling for our life. He just, he just summarizes it with saying, Okay, I've said family. I've said comfort. Let me just give one general point. If you don't leave it all, you can't be my disciple. When I read this, I thought about a quote by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you know who that is. He was a, a German theologian that was living during the time of the Nazis who decided that he would not just sit idly by while evil was going on in Germany, but he, he would try to, to do something about it. And what he said was this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, I read that quote when I was a sophomore, junior in high school, and here's what I want you to know. It changed my life. That one quote changed my life because it was a wake-up call to me of the true gospel. Because, listen, the real gospel is not just walking out, say a prayer, and then you're good to go from here on out. The real gospel is you lay down your life for the glory of the one who's laid down his life for you. I think a real-life example to kind of summarize up what, I, what I'm saying might help us here. What does this really look like in somebody's real life? I want to tell you about a man named William Borden. Does anybody know William Borden? Anybody ever heard of this story? I know y'all have heard the last name Borden, right? Anybody like milk? Right? That Borden milk is good stuff, okay? Go to Krispy Kreme, you're going to drink Borden milk, all right? Uh, the Borden family are... Are milk tycoons, I guess. You got oil tycoons and milk tycoons. Who, who knew, right? But the Borden family are milk tycoons. And William Borden was a man who grew up in the Borden family and was an heir to the Borden, the Borden family billions. Okay? Billions with a B, not millions with an N. All right? So we're talking super rich. All right? Some of y'all can probably play with the, the, the million category. These people are out, are out of most of our league. Okay? So let me read you his story. Y'all focus with me on the story because this story is really good. In 1904, 
William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school as heir to the Borden family fortune, billions of dollars. He was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world as the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. He felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. The two words were no reserves. You hold nothing back for Christ. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look just like one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something, noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any one of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. The entry simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life, a small prayer group. Borden's small prayer morning, morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden made it habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized a Bible study. We organized Bible study groups up in the class of 300 or more. Each man interested in taking a certain number. Each man was interested in taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one, and the question was asked, who will take this person? When it comes to someone thought to be hard proposition, there would be almost silent pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down to me. Borden's missionary called narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He was also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. That was the real iron in him. And I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Upon graduation, Borden turned down high-paying job offers. In his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. No reserves for Christ, no retreats. Doesn't matter what come, you don't turn back. William Borden went on to graduate to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary, Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China because he was hoping to work with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in such a joyous and natural way that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. 
Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written no regrets. And here's what I want to summarize Christ's call to you this morning. What I would tell you it means to follow Christ is to live a life that models this kind of life. A life with no reserves. Nothing's off the table. You are going 100% after Christ. Your life is a blank check. God, you make it out. That's no reserves. No retreats. No matter how scary it is, doesn't matter what may come, you don't turn around, you go after him. And then at the end of your life, you know what you're going to be able to say? I have no regrets. Now, here's what I would ask you. Are you living that kind of life? I just want to be honest with you. I was not, I was not originally planning on preaching today, okay? But I think it was God and his grace that gave me the opportunity to preach this text because all week long since I started studying this text, all I've had to do is repent because for some reason I've had in my mind that following Christ was about me and what Christ has made abundantly clear is this is not about you, Dallas. This is about me. And so I'm repenting this morning to you. And I'm praying this morning, Jesus, I just need more of you, more of you, blessing me. Is that what you're saying today? Is that what you're saying today? Last thing I want us to do this morning. I want you to see Christ calls us to count the cost. Look at verse 28 with me. We're going to read it one more time. Verse 28. Christ calls us to count the cost. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to read it. I told you what it said, right? Christ gives two examples. He looks at us and he says, if somebody's building a house, he's going to sit down and he's going to count up how much it costs to build this house. If a man has somebody coming to war with him, he's going to sit down and figure out what he can wage war against the next person is, if he can win. What Christ is inviting us to do when he's, in, when he's telling us this is to sit down and consider whether or not we are willing to die to ourselves for the glory of Christ. So this morning, as we've read this text, what Jesus has done, whether you realize it or not, has issued an invitation directly to you. He's inviting you this morning. He's inviting me this morning to sit down and count the cost Am I willing to die to myself and follow Jesus? That is the invitation from Christ to us. And in reality, here's what I want you to realize. The call to count the cost is an invitation to sit down and ask this one question. Is Jesus Christ worth it? That's what Jesus is asking of you today. That's what Jesus is asking of me. When you look at everything in your life, is Jesus worth dying to everything else? Is he worth saying no to everything else and saying yes to him? So I want you to ask yourself that right now. Is Christ worth losing everything for? But as you ask yourself that, listen, I've been pretty hard the whole time. 
I hadn't given you much good news, but here's what I want you to realize. I want you to realize what you're really asking when you say, is Christ worth it? I want you to see, really realize that dying to yourself and living for Christ is the only way you're ever going to really find real joy, real happiness, and real life. Uh, if you've got a Bible, listen, this is really important. If you've got a Bible, look at Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. I really want you to turn there if you've got your Bible. Do it real quick. Matthew 10 Verses 37 and 39. I want you to read Matthew's account of what Jesus says when he gives these words, all right? Because they're important. When Jesus says, is it worth it? In Matthew 10, verse 37 to 39, this is what he says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. These are the same words that we just read, okay? 39, this is what's different. This is what's important. This is what you got to realize. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's what Christ is saying to us. Here's what I realized when I realized that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What Christ is saying is, you go and you try to do the best you can to find happiness, to find joy, to find security, to find peace, and everything else this world has to offer, and I promise you, you will never find it. You will find your life, but at the end of your life, you'll have lost it. Then he looks at us and says, but if, if you're willing to hate your mother and your father and your wife, and your husband, and your children, if you're willing to hate all those things, if you're willing to pick up a cross and follow me, what he says is, if you're willing to lose your life, you're going to find it. You want a better marriage than you could ever dream of having? Listen, I'm not trying to tell you it's going to be perfect. Me and my wife argue all the time. Sometimes she comes off the top rope, looks just like Undertaker trying to tombstone me, okay? But you want to know what a great marriage is? Knowing that your wife is committed to doing whatever it takes for the glory of God to go forward and that no matter how dumb you are, she's not going to leave you. Because if, if she would have, she probably would have left already, okay? You want to find what true satisfaction is in your kids? Raise them up so that they love Jesus more than anything else. And then it doesn't matter what happens to them in this life, they'll be taken care of. You want to know true joy? It's knowing that you are a sinner deserving of hell, but Christ on the cross paid your sin so that you could become his righteousness. Christ says, lose your life. You'll find it. You'll find it. Count the cost, you right now. It's going to be hard. I'm not going to soft pedal it to you. I'm not going to say, man, it'll be the easiest decision you ever made. Maybe you can say that later, but I'm not going to tell you that right now. But look to Jesus and ask yourself, is he worth it or am I going to take care of myself? This is what I want to, our invitation time right now. If we could, let's just bow our heads and I'm going to pray. But I want to do this. There are two ways that we can respond right now. And I just want to, I just want to challenge you to respond one of these two ways. Number one, maybe you're here this morning and you've never realized what Christ really meant when he said, come and follow me. You've never given your life to Christ. You've never died to yourself and followed Jesus. Maybe you've heard it your whole life. Maybe you walked down the aisle and said a prayer when you were young. 
But now, for the first time this morning, with every head bowed, every eye closed, you said, I've never followed Jesus, and today I want to follow Jesus for real for the first time. If that's anybody here this morning, would you just raise your hand? Today is the day that I'm going to follow Jesus for the first time. If that's anybody, would you just slip your hand up and say, today's the day I'm dying to myself. Jesus is worth it. All right, here's the second way I want us to respond then. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like me. Somewhere along the lines, everything got crossed up, and you actually thought that the king of the universe was subject to your desires and your comfort. And today you're saying, I need to repent of that because I want to focus my heart on Christ and follow him. If that's you this morning, I want to challenge you. We're about to sing a song of invitation. invitation. Would you just come down here and pray and say, Jesus, I want you more than anything else. I challenge you with that this morning. Let's pray. God, you alone are good. God, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing but a foolish man with foolish words and foolish ramblings. God, may I be forgotten the second I step off the stage. But may your name be glorified through the lives of your people that when we leave here, dear God, our lives will be more about you than they are about our families or about our comforts or about us. For the glory of your name, Jesus, let it be, God, let it be so in my life. Let it be so in my wife's life, God. Let it be so in my child's life. And God, I just pray that if it's not, Lord, take me home. I'd rather go home to be with you than waste a life. For the glory of your name, Jesus, let it be in your people. In Christ's name.